Father, we are a people who understand that we uh, have, are participating in something that brings delight to heaven. It is the very design for which you have made us, that we might be worshipers, that you, the Heavenly Father, are to be worshipped in spirit and in truth because those are the ones that you seek. And we want to be those that you find doing that very thing, worshipping in spirit and in truth. Our Father, might what we do here today bring you pleasure and might it also change us into people who are more who more resemble Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord we understand O oh God that there's all sorts of inconsistency in us that doesn't make us happy we um, we are all too aware that we've failed you this week and we failed you before that as well but O oh God we have discovered you to be a God of mercy and grace. The God who, who has sent a solution for our failings. And so, O oh God, we concentrate not on that which we have done wrong, but we concentrate on that high calling, that, that desire to be made into the, more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, the desire we have to say no to sin and yes to the wooings of your spirit. We are a people who, who want to live more consistently for you. Some of us are new to this. Some of us are, have lived in this lifestyle for years. And yet, oh God, we still find, all of us still find, that there is still a long ways to go. And so, Lord, while we're here today, might there be something said or done or prayed or sung that would stimulate us to greater heights of holy living, all as a response to the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Our Father, in a few minutes, we will gather around this table on which is laid some symbols of the very cornerstone of our faith. Prepare us for that. Might we gather around that table to eat his flesh and drink his blood in, in, that, in the most glorious of spiritual manners. You have promised that you will attend to those who receive in faith. So, O oh God, prepare us to receive just that way. But now, O oh God, it's our time to give, and it's a delight to do so. Money is such a bugaboo for us, O oh God. It, is, it drives us crazy as to how to manage it. And yet we know that it first came from your bounteous hand. It's our joy, our privilege, to give a portion of it back. And we do so hoping that the cause of Jesus Christ will be advanced. And we pray, of course, in his name. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Mark chapter 11, and let's, um, let me read you just one of these, these verses, and there are bunches of them, and we'll see more of them next week, but um, one of the statements about forgiveness, we have, um, I remember when I was a child and I would come to church and see that it was, it was communion Sunday, I would, I realized that hot dog, the, uh, the sermon is briefer, 
and, and they are, uh, because we have much to do this morning. So let me just read two verses. Mark 11, verses 25 and 26. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Now, gang, take a look at this next verse. It is poignant to say the least. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. You know, I, I think you're probably saying finally, and, and really I am too, finally we get to the stuff that created this series in the first place. A desire to forgive horizontally and what we've done in the last two times that I was in this pulpit or actually in, the, in this series is try and lay a foundation for it to try and say to you that the model uh, for our forgiving each other is understanding that God or the, something about the way that God has forgiven us vertically that that's got to be the starting point and and we're about to move on now and get to this this horizontal business but guys, um, it simply cannot be overstated that this vertical forgiveness, it, it's, it's the, that precedes all else. And, and you, you cannot afford to skip over that, that essential first step. We, you have got to ask first, am I forgiven in heaven? Once that's settled, now, now we can move on, but don't, don't hasten over that step. Now, I, I think you realize that um, vengeance is, is big business today. It's, it's, it's popular. The, the, people my age, we were raised on Clint Eastwood movies. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know? and, and all those movies were, were about somebody or Clint Eastwood getting even with somebody. Uh, we have drive-by shootings, we have uh, road rage, we have disgruntled employees, we have school bombings, we have ethnic cleansing. They're, they're all sins of vengeance. It's, it's prevalent all around us. I, I'm convinced that, uh, well, I'm not, so much of the counseling that I do, I, I, I'd have to say 40, 50% of it is just trying to tell people you know, you really need to forgive that. You really need to get beyond that. You're going to have to bury that so that we can move on. And you know, guys, I think most people know that. That is, I think they know that we're supposed to forgive. I, I think somehow the, the model of Jesus Christ who hangs on a cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, I think that has somehow seeped into the cultural consciousness we know we're supposed to forgive. Um, and, and if there was anyone who had a good reason not to forgive, it would have been Jesus. If there was ever, if there was ever a victim, it, it was him, totally innocent of any wrongdoing. And yet, Peter, in a very interesting statement, this is, let me read it to you. 
in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says this, two verses. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Do you understand what Peter is asking us? He's saying, let's, let's all understand how Jesus dealt with his sufferings. Let's all get a good sense of, of how he responded when he was being victimized. And then let's go handle ours like he handled his. Now, I, I think we know that. That is, I think we know at least we're supposed to do that. Um, we all agree that forgiveness is required. That's not the problem. The, it, is, it is not the what. It is the how. Um, I, I think so many of us long to forgive, but we just can't get there. We don't seem to be quite able to pull it off. And every sermon I've ever heard makes it sound a whole lot easier than it really is. We know the what. We struggle with the how. And that's what I want to begin this morning, ladies and gentlemen, is to try and give you some foundation to arrive at the goal that I think most of you have already. I know I'm supposed to. Show me how to get there. Um, I want to begin by offering a somewhat of a lengthy piece of analysis, but I want you to know it's a very practical piece of analysis, and I think you'll see that when we close. But it's not analysis just for analysis' sake. It is, if I understood what I'm up against, then maybe I will prescribe the right medicine that will help me get well. I, I want to... What I would like to show you is, why is this so difficult on us? At least one part of it. This won't cover all the bases, but it'll give you some idea, I think, about why this thing is so hard. And um, to do that, let me remind you of this parable. I meant to bring my, my, my Rembrandt print, but I, it was raining, and I wasn't going to bring it out in the rain. But... Um, you remember the, the parable of the prodigal son? And you, you see this father receiving his son with all manner of willingness, you know, and, and he runs down the road and grabs him and kisses him before ever a word of repentance comes out of his mouth and nothing, he doesn't say anything, the father just overcomes him within his grace and mercy and love. And, and you know, that's good news for us prodigals, isn't it? But what I'm suggesting is that that parable not only solves part of our problem, it creates part of our problem. Because we, we understand that we're, that we're supposed to forgive, but aren't we supposed to insist on some kind of penance first? I mean... Um, you know, looking at that father, in one sense, I'm real glad he did what he did. But in another sense, he creates a problem for me. 
Because if that's the model, if that's the kind of forgiveness, then I don't know much about that. And the demands are incredible. When I was, um, and this has been a year ago, when I, more than that, when I was trying to read enough to become an expert on these matters, um, I found a book. I found a book mentioned it was in Christianity Today. The title of the book is The Sunflower. Ever read it? It's written by a band by the name of Simon Weisenthal. Does that ring a bell? Simon Weisenthal is a Holocaust survivor. And he writes this book, and uh, I mean, it is a, it is a winner. Uh, a fascinating book. Let me tell you about it. The first hundred pages of the book, in the first hundred pages, he tells his story. Let me tell you the story. This is, his sto- this is, this is a true story. This actually happened. It happened to the author of the book, Simon Weisenthal. Simon Weisenthal uh, was, of course, imprisoned in one of the death camps. They, They don't mention which one. But in the course of his imprisonment there, he was dragged into a hospital there on the campsite Uh, because a SS trooper, a German soldier, had requested a Jew. Any Jew will do. Just get me a Jew. And so Simon Weisenthal happened to be the Jew that was dragged into the hospital room of this dying Nazi soldier. And in the first hundred pages, it tells the story about what this Nazi soldier told Simon Weisenthal. Um, here's this story. I'm going to do it briefly. Very frankly, cover the ears of your children. That's not true, but... On one particular occasion, the the, the German army gathered what they estimated to be 300 Jewish people into a multi-storied house. They didn't say whether it was two-story or three-story, but they gathered all these people in this house. And then they set it on fire. And um, as the house was going up in flames... From the top floor, this actually happened, ladies and gentlemen, the top floor, a family of four jumped out of the window. A husband, a wife, and two children. This Nazi soldier that was in the hospital killed them all. Riddled them with machine gun fire, killing all four of them. And so what he was doing is he wanted a Jew. He wanted a Jew to come in so that he could tell his story to him, and he wanted to get forgiveness. Simon Weisenthal listened to the story, and without granting forgiveness, turned and left the room. That's the first 100 pages of the book. The next 300 pages of the book is a symposium. They gathered every name that you can possibly imagine, and they wrote him a letter and said, here's what Simon Weisenthal did. Do you agree or disagree? What you have in the back of that book is 300, well, 75 responses 
to the question, was he right or was he wrong? The answers were absolutely fascinating. One man said, he was a Jew, he said, if you could lick my heart, it would poison you. You know what? I'm afraid if we could lick some of yours, it would poison us too. I want to read you. I, guys, I, I have so many up here, I could read you all, but we, we have other things to do. I'm going to read you one. Actually, I'm going to read you a couple, but this is out of the book, The Sunflower. Warsaw, 1979. We are standing in front of the memorial to those Jews who lost their lives defending the Warsaw Ghetto. It is raining. A personal friend who survived that battle is giving an impassioned address. It is in Polish. Several days later, he gives me a copy of the translation. The passion carries over into English. The theme is clear. Never forget, never forgive. That we must never forget is perhaps the clearest lesson of the Holocaust. For if we forget, a time will come when even the worst, even worse atrocities will be committed against Jews and any others whom those with power wish to destroy. That we must never forgive would seem to follow from the same stern logic. For if we forgive, it will be a sign to those in the future that they can act without fear of punishment and that the universe has a moral escape valve labeled forgiveness that permits evil not only to survive but to thrive. On this reading, forgiveness becomes a weak virtue, one that Christians seem particularly prone to champion and one that always carries the possibility of condoning rather than constricting the spread of evil. What do you think about that? Never forget. Never forgive. Was this man's opinion. There's another man I want you to hear from, William Bennett. You know him, the list of virtues guy. He wrote another book about the disappearance of virtue in our country. And in that, he attacks Billy Graham. Because as you may know, Billy Graham extended forgiveness to our president and um, in so doing says that uh, he's a strong, virtuous young man with a tremendous personality for whom the ladies just go wild. And William Bennett says this, and what is it precisely that Billy Graham forgives the president for? What has the president admitted doing? Billy Graham forgives him for something the president has denied in his deposition ever having done. What we have then is forgiveness being granted without admission of guilt, without apology, without repentance. Forgiveness is becoming a synonym for lax standards and tolerance and for acceptance of transgressions. And that is a terrible thing to allow to happen. For in Christian doctrine, says William Bennett, forgiveness comes an extraordinarily high cost one of the century's most important theologians, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed, by the way, by the Germans, wrote about what he called cheap grace. We violate God's canons of justice when we invoke forgiveness casually 
trivially, promiscuously. You agree with that? Oh, there's, there's dozens of others. I um, was faxed several years ago, not several years ago, but a couple of years ago, an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal. I don't have time to read it to you. I wish I could. But uh, the title will communicate the point. The title of the article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal is When Forgiveness is Sin. One other thing that I want to bring you is a chapter, it's a story that came out of a, a Philip Yancey book. And um, it's a story about uh, a man who was imprisoned in a maximum security prison off the island, uh, off of the coast of Australia. And one day, while he was in prison, without any provocation whatsoever, he turned on another prisoner and, prisoner and beat him to death. Uh, whereupon, the authorities in Australia brought him to the, to the mainland to try him. And as he stood before the judge, the judge said, why? What was your possible motive in killing this man? And the prisoner replied that he was sick of life there on, the, on that uh, island. And the judge said, well, I, I understand that. Uh, it is kind of brutal out there, but why didn't you just go drown yourself in the sea? Why did you have to kill somebody? And this is what he said. And I quote, well, I figure it's like this. I'm a Catholic. If I commit suicide, I'll go straight to hell. But if I murder, I can come back here to Sydney and confess to a priest before my execution. That way, God will forgive me. Does that cause any turmoil in your soul? I have several up here, ladies and gentlemen. We just don't have time to look at them. Um... After hearing all that, you may wonder, where in the world? What has he done to us? Um, what you've done, Jimmy, is just make forgiveness far more difficult. And I wonder how in the world you're going to stand on that pulpit and, and speak about the urgency of forgiveness. I want you to know that I will speak about the urgency of forgiveness. And those stories don't change anything and here's why I think not the reason that I offer you those rather obtuse examples is that I'm convinced that those examples help us see what we're up against I, I think what they do is give us some smidgen of analysis as to why forgiveness is so difficult. Those stories, I think, confront us with the essence of the question. And here's how I see it. That is, how I see the essence of the question concerning forgiveness. Here it is. Is there any kind of situation in which the offense is so gross and so enormous that I should withhold forgiveness? Is there any kind of situation 
in which the offense is so gross, so enormous, that I should refuse to forgive. What am I afraid of? What is it that causes me to hem and hedge on my end? What, what is it that, that makes me to <clears throat> clear my throat before I am suspicious of why I'm being asked that question? Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Here's what I think we're all afraid of. I think we're afraid of cheap grace. I think we're afraid that people might be getting off scot-free. And so, ladies and gentlemen, here's my analysis. You and I are caught. We are impaled on the horns of this dilemma the demand for forgiveness and the desire for justice. That's why I think it's so hard. Now, hear me. I want to remind you of the parable of the prodigal son. In that parable, we find a father who was impaled on the horns of the same dilemma. A father who is embarrassed and humiliated and rejected. A father who was told by his son, I wish you were dead. And in the midst of his dilemma, that father chose forgiveness. Are you glad? I am. And for you, my brother and sister in Christ, I want you to remember this. There is one thing that you must never pray for. Do you hear me? There is one thing you should never pray for. Never pray that you will get justice. because you might. My friend, be very glad that the father of the prodigal son gave to his son not justice, but he gave to him mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. Gang, this desire on our parts for justice, you know, to to see them get just what's coming to them. 
that is a very dangerous and a very dark business. It's dangerous because it's so selective. We, we want God to give, we want God to give him just what he's got coming. We want her to get her, cup on, her comeuppance. But don't give that to me. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if God starts distributing justice, that's going to mean that I'm going to get justice too. And folks, if we get justice, you're not going to like it. Folks, Listen, God has appointed a day on which all the books will be balanced. Until then, you and I need to revel in mercy. Until then, you and I need to cling more tightly to Christ and be reminded that when mercy gets distributed to places it shouldn't go, to people who didn't deserve it, we were one of them. We were one of those that didn't get what we deserved. We were one of those that got mercy instead of justice. And for us to enter into this business of opting for justice, get them, God! It's a very dangerous thing, ladies and gentlemen. You and I, have got to get out of the business of doing God's job for him. Trust me. He does it. And he does it quite well. I leave you with this. Listen. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. It is not yours. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I, for one, am oh so glad 
that God didn't give me what I deserve. Our Father, forgive us that some of us have gone into the God business. Some of us have decided that we know best how to handle offense. Some of us have decided that without us, you can't get your job done very well. Some of us have decided that whereas others might deserve justice, we don't. Oh God, give us that sweet peace of abiding in your great sovereignty that whatever you do, you do well. And whatever happens to those who have so grievously offended us, it will be good. Might we find our rest in your great goodness. Displayed to us in Christ Jesus the Lord. We pray, of course, in his name. Amen. Now, my brother and sister in Christ, we get to gather around an emblem of forgiveness. The very tokens left behind to remind us of the centerpiece of our faith. And boy, do we invite you, and we invite you with zeal. It is our delight to say to you, this is not a table set for Grace Evan members. It is a table set for Christians. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, this table is for you. We hope that you'll avail yourself of it. But mom and dad, I, 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 I do want to say to you, I know your kids are eager to get out of here, and we will get out of here shortly, but this is not something that I think you should use to, to slake their their boredom. Explain what this is. Take this opportunity to do that. As you know, that on the night that our Savior was betrayed, he took bread. And I can see him looking around the room now, and, and when he broke it, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this. in remembrance of me.
Romans 1, we're taught that nature displays God's great glory and divine power, divine nature to us. Because of that, the Bible says all men are held accountable to God. But it is in the special revelation of God's word that we are revealed his saving grace. But God has seen fit because we are physical beings living in a natural world to leave us reminders of that saving grace, some specific elements out of that natural world, the broken body of Christ, the bread, and the spilled blood of Christ, the juice. We celebrate his grace today. After they had broken bread together, Jesus took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin.